They told me I could only be a custodian. They told me I could only be a police officer. They told me I could only be a lawyer. Doctor. Performer. Financier. Sex worker. Engineer. Warrior. Programmer. Pilot. Doctor. Performer. Financier. Sex worker. Doctor. Warrior. Pilot. Sex worker. They told me I could only be a helldiver. We're done being told who we can be. Hello everyone, welcome to Hail Reaper. My name is Philip, and this is your Lightbringer preview with the author of the Red Rising Saga, Pierce Brown. In early June, we got together with Pierce to talk about Iron Gold, about Dark Age, but more importantly, how these books build to Lightbringer, and Pierce offers some very fun teases for the upcoming release. There is no spoiler talk for Lightbringer, but there is spoiler talk for both Iron Gold and Dark Age. We had a great time hanging out with Pierce, both off and on the microphone, and we're very thankful for his time. Lastly, I want to set up the episode before we get going. We're going to jump right into our conversation about our favorite Star Wars show, Andor, and how it relates to Red Rising. During that portion of the conversation, our producer, Joel, had to interrupt us for a couple minutes, and instead of cutting it out, we thought, let's just leave it in. It gives you a sense that you're there with us, but it's also pretty funny, and that's ultimately the reason we wanted to leave it in. We want to thank Pierce. We want to thank Joel at Melrose Podcasts. We want to thank all of you for listening. Enjoy the episode. I have a question for you, a Star Wars question, because I'd rather talk about uh, Star Wars with you right okay. now before we get going to... Uh, you got to butter me up? Yeah, I got to butter <laughs> yeah, you up, dude. Yeah, yeah okay. we gotta, So, okay. Seriously, though, I know you've been critical of recent Star Wars IP. Mm. Pretty critical. But have you watched the show Andor? Of course. <sighs> Thank you. Yeah, I mean, The <laughs> yeah. Guns of Navarone is one of my favorite movies growing up. My my grandmother, we would always huddle around her tiny little television, watch all the uh, great World War II movies. Yeah. She was in love with Gregory Peck, so I had no <laughs> choice. And Andor is a spiritual uh, ancestor of of that. It's been, it's, I watched it. He was like, you got to watch this. You got to watch it. And I was like, okay, sure, whatever. Because, yeah. you know, I'm, I've been critical of, you know, more recent Star Wars stuff too. And then... We put it on and I was just like, what the hell is this? This is incredible. And mm-hmm. we we reference it all the time in our podcasts, like talking about Red Rising, because we feel like, I, f- I got to feel like they ripped you off a little bit, to be honest with you. You never know. <laughs> you never know when you're in the common pot. Mm-hmm. Uh, at a certain point, uh, yeah, you can think that, but maybe we drew from the same inspiration. For sure. Yeah. Can I stop you? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> your stand is in his... I'm just going to yeah, yeah. stand a little bit. I can't see your face very oh, I thought you had Andor commentary. Yeah, he's like, wait, hold on. He's like, <laughs> I, I need to be on the like, mic. You guys are so wrong on this. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Obi-Wan is the superior <laughs> Star Wars show. <laughs> Do I? It's on my he's nose. Like, stop, stop. Obi-Wan. Stop. Obi-Wan. I can Fastest shift toward him a little bit too. Yeah, I just want a Jar Jar Binks sitcom. What's that? I want a Jar Jar Binks sitcom. Oh my God. 
if I'm there. That'd nice be rough, dude. Great. Thank you, guys. Uh, Iron Gold is our, probably our favorite book. Really? Yeah. I know that, like, Absolutely. people... I, I, I'm tied. It's 1A, 1B, Morningstar, and Iron yeah. Gold. Yeah. And I think it just, it's weird because we don't really see that consensus. We we talk about it so highly, tout it. We love it. We love the themes. The people don't seem to gravitate towards that one as much. I think the POV split, it was a little well, jarring for certain yeah, people and something like that. I will say that when I was putting together Iron Gold and when I wrote it, I knew that it would be divisive. Mm-hmm. And I also thought, my hunch was that it would grow on people. And slowly grow yeah. because especially when you read Iron Gold with after being informed by Dark Age and then eventually Lightbringer, I feel as it as though it'll have more power and you'll see the machinations building, mm-hmm. and it the intricacy of it is a you know, step forward from the original trilogy, mm-hmm. and so I think that it'll be more appreciated as time goes on. So it's been actually nice. There's some people that do think it's their favorite. Yeah, because I mean, yeah. for me it was the same way. It was kind of like. Where's the Darrow? You know, I just wanted to, I wanted to go back to that original sure. vibe. Sure. And then it was the second or third read through. I was just like, why was I critical of this again? I don't think it's as much that as I think it's, it's you didn't have connection with the characters yet. That too. And then you look back and then those initial moments with them are more special and you're actually mm-hmm. not holding your breath for a Darrow chapter or skim reading. Yeah. My theory would be that it's because you feel that connection and you're looking for the details. You're looking for the seeds that grow into, you know, the tree of hell that is dark age. Yeah. <laughs> and I think that that's a very natural thing to do. But also I was just learning how to do multiple POVs mm-hmm. in that one. And the pacing, I was still learning how to do that. And I think I got better with it at dark age and then better with it with Lightbringer. Well, so part of it could also be, you know, the flaw in the delivery of the medium, you know? Yeah. I, I kind of, I'm, we're reading Lightbringer right now. Mm-hmm. We're like, I'm about, we're about, about 50% of the way through. Uh, it's been tremendous. It's been a, such a ride. I was reading Lightbringer the other day and I was just like, how the hell does he do this? Like, and, and I'm seriously, like with the POV splits and just having, you've really matured in the voices, even since Iron Gold, the voices are so much more mature. Uh, and I just feel like you're even getting to know the characters still even better and better and better. Like how challenging has been that process to write stuff like, you know, going from that initial series, single, you know, present tense POV, and then going into that multiple POV and then kind of just keep ascending in that that craft. Well, to answer that question, let's go through the chronology. Yeah. Uh, 2014, Red Rising. 2015, Golden Sun. 2016, mm-hmm. Morning Star. 2017, Iron Gold. 2019, A Dark Age. 2023, uh, Lightbringer. It's way harder. Yeah. <laughs> it's way harder. Requires way more uh, mental RAM, so to speak. Mm. And kind of the cognitive load of having all these characters going at once because, one, you have to get their themes to evolve at the same pace and come to a similar or united thematic conclusion. But you also have to get the uh, causation. Uh, what does one person doing something do to another person? How much – I think the most difficult part is also tied to that. It's what information does everyone have and when? Mm-hmm. And what, how does that affect them? And how does that affect their emotional state? So it's basically like, um, you know, going back in time would be very complicated because the butterfly effect, right? And so when you operate with multiple POVs, and I think to maximize multiple POVs, you really have to take the butterfly effect into account because that's, that causation is part of the fun of it. And that effect that other characters uh, have in other characters' lives and plots is the fun of a multiple POV story. So if you really are trying to take advantage of that device, then it takes a lot more cognitive load than it would just to write a single person perspective. Yeah, I think going back kind of to IG, um, it's always been my favorite book. I, 
Uh, Always. Oh, gee. But, the, but yeah. the reason, the reason changed because the first time I encountered it, it was almost like a, the cool factor. It, it felt more Blade Runner. I think in the first series, you have very much, um, you know, your, your setting is kind of throne room or mine. And finally, you get the, the real world, um, I think, set apart, especially by the orange girl uh, in the prologue. Mm-hmm. I think it really gives the attachment to like what I actually encounter in real life. Um, and then from that kind of cool tangibility and, and Blade Runner darkness, it, it really grew into those themes. And um, that's exactly the way I put it is those greater questions you ask of your IP. Yeah. Um, and I think the, the other thing about that you spoke about the differences of uh, PO or um, the differences of uh, the different voices, right, mm-hmm. is like it gives honesty to Daryl. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, before the effect checkers. They yeah, are fact checkers, finally, right? Because right. for the yeah. first time, we get somebody disliking, like genuinely disliking Darrow and not his own spin on things. Mm-hmm. So, like, how is that writing? I mean, how did that impact you? Well, one of the reasons I knew that people would not initially, uh, I would say, declare Iron Gold their favorite book, or one of the reasons I suspected that, was because all of the other three characters have a reason to hate Darrow, mm-hmm. and they all do yeah. in their own way. You know, Lysanders is more of a latent hate. He thinks he's beyond it and then falls back into it. Um, Lyria is frustrated for many reasons, and she can be a frustrating character, but it's not her fault in many ways. One of my favorite well, characters. She's, yeah, she's supposed, she's supposed to be plucky yeah. when she comes from hell. Yeah. Yeah. But there's a reason she's a gamma. There's a reason she's whiny, you know, because they had it pretty well, in the, pretty good in the mines. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And you also see that disenfranchised workforce that has no skills to cope in the real world and then got, you know, immediately screwed over by the Silvers, even though they volunteered to do it. I felt as though that had a lot of echoes with uh, migratory workforces and, um, you know, uh, emancipation in our real world. And so the, there, there's, a, there's a real advantage to first-person present tense. It's very immediate. It's very emotional. And it's also a keyhole view into a world. And because of that, something can be leaner. Darrow's, you know, in the mine. He's in the institute. He's in the war rooms. He's falling in rains. So that gives you a very narrow view of the world. And one of the reasons I wanted to do the POVs is because I very much, like you said, I wanted to expand the world. I wanted to be able to be in cities. Because Darrow can't really go undercover mm-hmm. unless he's impersonating an obsidian or a gold. Right. Either way, <laughs> that's a Leviathan coming at you, right? Yeah. But with Ephraim and Lyria and even Lysander, you can go into these worlds and not have everyone immediately notice him. And you can assimilate better and you can see the world. So part of it was also I wanted these characters to be uh, our new keyhole into different parts of the world. And Lyria going to the Museum of the Rising is one of my favorite pieces because you get to see how they memorialize their dead. And art often comes mm. from the, the – the, well, when, when voices are made silent, sometimes all they can do is scream, right? And that's what art is a lot of times. It's a scream. If you look at like the Guernica, which I think is one of the most imposing and affecting pieces of art I've ever seen – that inspired a lot of the Rising's art, you know, the, the Holocaust Museum and Memorial in uh, Berlin mm-hmm. inspired these, uh, the room of uh, uh, faces, like the eternal mm-hmm. scream. Because have you guys been to that museum? No. no. Okay. So they have these iron faces that are in this almost like grotesque scream, kind of art deco. Mm-hmm. And there's just thousands of them littering this concrete silo. Wow. And the silo is open to the sky. So when you're supposed to, like, there's, everyone kind of gathers on the, the edge, but you're actually supposed to walk out onto the faces because when you walk on them, it's supposed to be the metaphor, right? Mm. And then they make such a clattering and it echoes and reverberates to the sky. 
So anyway, I wanted to show those things. Yeah. And if you do Darrow in those scenes, you know, he's kind of just observing the world building, whereas opposed, as opposed to the other characters getting to actually interact with that world. It's a fantastic homage. It works so well. It's so visceral. Even for someone who's never experienced like the Holocaust Museum, you kind of brought it to us in that way. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think you do that a lot. I think that yeah. a lot of times there's things you, you're well read your experience. You, we were talking before we got on the podcast, you've lived in like, you know, eight different States or whatever you've traveled, you've seen mm-hmm. a lot. And so you kind of take us different places with your story, just within a different medium, you know, in a sci-fi world, but it still feels incredibly grounded. Um, you still feel like the, you know, the callback that I'm sure a lot of people have told you is that, the, our relationship to the characters is what, you know, what we really love. It's what we really are attracted to about the series. Like, yeah, it's sci-fi. Yeah, it's fun. Yeah, it's thrilling. But it's really the people that we become so deeply invested in and we want to talk to you about and want to know about more. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I think that's the addictive quality of it. It's yeah. found family. Yeah. You know, in uh, Star Wars, you have the Millennium Falcon. Mm-hmm. Harry Potter, you have Hogwarts. Hogwarts, yeah. And Best character in the movies, uh, right? or the, the books, rather, yeah. Yeah, and in Red Rising, you know, of a physical place, it's more like the howlers, mm-hmm. the cloak, the traditions, the hazing, yeah. the inside jokes, you know, the, the howling. All those things create that, I think, nostalgic place, nostalgic feel in this place of home. And I think that's mm-hmm. one of the things that people keep coming back to. They've adopted it so well, too. You know, we, we call ourselves howlers. Like, so we, like, we're all howler. You're a howler. You're howler one. Mm-hmm. It's like it's become so, I mean, you see Discord communities. You see fan communities. You see Instagram communities. You see all these people with their, uh, you know, like just their cosplays and their stuff. And we all feel like you've indoctrinated us all somehow into yeah, it. Yeah, And somebody, I don't think that was your intention, but you, yeah. you completely did that. It wasn't my intention. Yeah. Uh, the howlers were, several just grew on the page. I mean, he was never meant to be as well-liked as he was. Which I think says a, th- a lot of things about the people who find the books. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and the Howlers were an aside. I wrote it without a plan, without an outline, just as a brief aside. You know, the people, the small ones that he sends up the latrines because no one yeah. else can fit. And I call them my Howlers. And that was an accident, you mm-hmm. know. And that's kind of, that's very surprising to me. Because you do try to do all this mental branding in your head. Oh, people are going to be addicted to this and love <laughs> this, you know. Yeah. And then the Howlers pops out. So I feel yeah. like that's perhaps why it's been so attractive to the audience. Because it was natural and feels natural. Mm-hmm. I just actually went through the graphic audio. Oh, yeah. Recently of yeah. that. So it was like I got to relive the first book for the first time in years. They did a sterling job, yeah. didn't they? Yeah, it was really fun. Yeah. Mustang's voice, uh, Jenna, I believe uh-huh. the actor's name, shout out, just the best. Uh, right, right. Yeah, so good. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of other voices, but I just found her to be like just top class. It yeah, awesome. and if you, if you can get one who sounds like the character in your head, mm-hmm. you're already overachieving. <laughs> Do you, do you, you probably have a really strong visual reference and even like probably an auditory reference for these characters in your head too, do you? No, I have a more of a tonal reference. Tonal? Okay. But that encompasses everything, I think. Yeah. More so I can dictate pretty clearly who is or is not, if, if a character is not represented well. Mm-hmm. Say, for instance, if someone was, how would I say, visual, visually it's impossible for me to really imagine them. It's, it's more of that, you know, when someone comes in a room and they have a vibe. Yeah. It's kind of like that. Yeah. yeah. And so I'd know if like an alien had inhabited my mom and I'd just be like, you're mom, but you're not. But you're not mom. Yeah. And so that's yeah. like with the characters sometimes. And every now and then someone like voice actor just knocks it out of the park. Mm-hmm. I mean, I actually have no reference points for these characters in my head. Like I just, 
I try to picture them the way they look like. PB Doodles is probably informing me the most mm. on what I think the characters look like. I heard Duke of Hands specifically. I, I actually was like, oh, that's that's it. Like, I, you know. I have a pretty I have a pretty strong visual for some of the yeah. tertiary or secondary characters. Mm, okay, much less so than the the main characters. Main characters seem a little bit more difficult to put a finger on. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's because it's like it becomes a mental composite because these guys have been with me for eleven years. And so there's not one actor who's kind of, or actress that's, you know, stayed the same during that time, you know. <laughs> Although I guess my characters have aged up too, so it'd be actually pretty easy mm-hmm. that way. But uh, the Duke of Hands, yeah, PB Doodles does a great job. And I think that sometimes there's pieces of art that really represent the world to me. I think there was one by, have you guys played the the board game? Mm-hmm. Yes. So yeah, the artist, Justin Wong, who mm-hmm. did yeah. the art for that, he did the first iteration of Severo that I saw. Mm-hmm. Remember the one where he's cloaked all in metal and clinging to the mm-hmm. side of a skyscraper? I was yes. like, yeah. that's my boy. We, we've played a few times this house. Yeah. 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 I was like, that's my boy. That image was just, the first time I saw an image, and I was like, that's Red Rising. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it's interesting with those arts. Um, it's like, I'll see, like we brought up PB Doodles, and I have... Not really a great idea of some of these characters, but when I see them, I know. I, I remember there was a Mustang she did, and oh, that Mustang's beautiful. It just suddenly made sense to me. I'm like, yes, I, I couldn't see it in my head before, but that is in fact Mustang. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I don't know if you get that with your main characters because you said you you kind of have the image of the secondaries. Yeah, I would say I, n- I rarely reference a piece of art in thinking about a Darrow or a Mustang. There's ones that I think are pretty good representations. But Lauren Alarcos uh, is an easier one. Mm-hmm. He was, um, what was his, Oliver Reed is who he's based on. Okay. Um, Google that Oliver right now. Reed. He's, uh, Mac, <laughs> he's uh, Proximo in Gladiator. But um, yeah, and for the Duke of Hands, he's just so, how do I say it? The secondary and tertiary characters are just not as layered, not as complex, not as full of, uh, strange traits, so I don't know them as well. So mm-hmm. I think the f- visual representation is is more likely to be how I remember them as opposed to that kind of tonal frequency I was talking about. Yeah. So with TGR though, it's a, you said you have tone in your head. Mm-hmm. Does he nail it every time? He nails, yeah, he nails the delivery every time. Now yeah. Darrow's of course not a, you know, he's a 16-year-old minor. He's not necessarily <laughs> a... <laughs> I don't want to age TGR here, so no, uh, he's not an older Irishman. Right. But uh, yeah, I think he nails the delivery. He nails the uh, performance to a T. I've never directed him, never had really had to give him notes. He just, wow. you can tell that he appreciates the books by how he delivers mm. them. Mm-hmm. Well, I know that I've, well, I've seen a lot of people on Reddit, like Red Rising Reddit are like posting frequently, like, hey, is TGR, because he's listed on the Audible website, is the only... Um, only narrator for the yeah, book. Yeah, And you, I think I heard you say at one point that he is going to be the sole narrator of Lightbringer. Sole narrator of Lightbringer, yeah. yeah. And what was, the, what was the choice or the reasoning for you wanted to do that? Well, you know, the fans, uh, the readers, the listeners had variable opinions about the other narrators. Mm-hmm. Some of them love them. A lot don't. And so I thought that take that, um, take that uh, off the table and just bring it back to the roots. It's mostly Darrow's story, mm-hmm. Lightbringer, spiritually at least. So I really wanted to bring uh, TGR back for the entire thing because when I think of Red Rising, yeah, the other voices might be great on the uh, Iron Gold and Dark Age, but it isn't what I, it isn't the nostalgia I think about. Mm-hmm. And so I really wanted to bring back that nostalgia of when you first heard the series or first 
read the series make it feel as though even though it's gotten later, you know, further on in the books and in timelines, it's still Darrow's story. It's still that initial nostalgia you felt when you read Red Rising. Mm. Yeah. So it's many ways about digging the roots. <laughs> I'm going classic there. Um, yeah. I do have a question. So we've been reading Lightbringer. I mentioned that. And we've been, as we've been reading it, we talk about it all the time. We just, we just get on the phone and we kind of just, we just have like a little 10 minute, 20 minute session, just like uh-huh. going back and forth. Like, what do you think that's going to lead to what that going to mean? And even Red God, we're like trying to, we're trying to make the predictions right now. Oh, yeah. like Who's Red up. God? Who's Lightbringer? Yeah. Well, actually, Which I have a theory. It? I have a theory. Before I go to my question, uh-huh. I think that you, your dog, is the Red God. And because God and dog are bad, bad. You're just like, you're just secretly, yeah. Yeah, yeah. That'd be, that'd be pretty literate, yeah. literary of me. Yeah. <laughs> no, I'm just joking. Dostoevsky in the backseat. Yeah. He's <laughs> one of his favorite authors. Oh, yeah. Um, but as we've been reading it, we've kind of been referencing your Comic-Con remarks from last year. Oh boy, what'd I say? Well, I, I have some quotes here. Oh no. no all good things, all no, good, good things. things. And okay. been, but we've been so curious about it because we, we want to kind of dig a little deeper on these things. Sure. So when you were at Comic-Con last year, I know you even said you admitted you were rambling. Like it was oh, funny, yeah. but yeah, it was yeah, great. Yeah. It was so good. But the comments you made, and they, there's a small clip that did kind of go Red Rising viral. It was about mm-hmm. a minute and 20 seconds or so. And I watched it numerous times, but I've watched the full interview a lot too. <laughs> So you had... Why do you guys have to have cameras? <laughs> <laughs> but you, you had these quotes about, you know, you were saying in, in terms of Lightbringer, you wanted to go back to the original mm-hmm. DNA. You wanted mm-hmm. to... And then, but the, the more interesting thing about that, because I, I can see that and I can feel that in the book tonally. But the more interesting things for us were that you said that Daryl's journey didn't feel authentic. And that you also said that you just maybe had felt the series hadn't felt authentic at the time. And I wanted to ask and kind of, kind of pry on that if you were able to. What about the series to that point or mm. really Darrow's story didn't really feel authentic to you at that time? Are you referencing when I deleted about 400 pages of Lightbringer? There, there's that, yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's why I did that. It mm-hmm. didn't feel authentic because it felt as though he was on a trajectory that was predecided as opposed to organic. And what I mean by that is the way his brain, based on who I know him to be, would react to the conditions he now found himself in. Mm. I think that Iron Gold and Dark Age did feel organic. And I think that I was talking about the bridge to Lightbringer because I was trying to make it the final book in the series for a while. And it didn't feel like Darrow had that step forward how do I say it? Lightbringer is Darrow stepping forward by stepping backward. And mm. I think that mm. he's always stepped forward by stepping forward. And I don't think he's had that book where he's really dealing with what he's done, mm. it, where he's really impacted. Iron Gold. <laughs> I want to say so many things right now. Well, Iron, <laughs> Gold and, Iron Gold and Dark Age is him encountering the effects. But what self-work has he done? Right. And for me, that's what didn't feel organic because mm-hmm. he wasn't yet – and I didn't want the final book to be him doing that self-work. Mm-hmm. I want the final book to be him at his, I'd say, sharpest. Okay. That's a good tease. Him evolved. Yeah. Yeah. No, I'm, I'm glad you clarified because thinking back of just the second series, his arc, um, I, I love where you took him. I think that – Darrow is a very honest character. I think that, uh, you know, his fallibility is, is of particular interest. And, and while you're the final arbiter of, of his destiny, 
I've, I've gotten flack for my opinions of, of what he can become. Mm. Um, but it, it seems like a logical conclusion, you know, when you, when you talk through some of these things. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, do you, do you feel like uh, there's ever tension, like, between what people want you to do with the character oh, yeah. versus how you need to write oh, yeah. somebody? But what, what do if, you do with that? If it was what they wanted all the time, we wouldn't be here. You know, yeah. that, I think that's the difficult thing for sometimes readers to understand. Just because you want it doesn't mean it's right. And just because I do it doesn't mean it's right either. It's my story. Right. And I made it up out of nothing. <laughs> so I think that that's actually the only critique that ever bothers me mm-hmm. is someone thinking I've lost it or that I don't mm. know what I'm doing. Oh, Pierce got it wrong. Yeah, that I got it wrong. <laughs> and I'm like, then People you write it, a fucking dude. book. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and that's the, only, that's the only one that gets me because it's like I'm not, you know, just chopping at things in the woods here. Mm-hmm. And sometimes patience is required to see how things turn out or to see with something you don't like in the plot, how it'll actually be used. And perhaps I have a plan. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. And so I think that's something that was different in this initial, in this trilogy is, or quadru- tetralogy, I guess now, yeah. um, is that there are things that, um, Seeds that were put in and seeds that were sown in Morningstar because when I was writing Morningstar, I discovered that this had to be more than a three-book series. Mm -hmm. And I like playing with archetypes and then I like inverting archetypes. And it's difficult sometimes over a a four-book series, especially when such time is between books – for to leave an archi- something hanging because people assume it's going to be that archetype that they don't like, mm-hmm. you know, and yeah. it's going to go the way that, oh, they think they know how it's going to go. And maybe, maybe they guessed it, you know? Right. But that's sometimes, I think, why Iron Gold was not as well-loved as I hoped it would be is because it wasn't the same because it, ha- it can't be the same. If it was, yeah. you know, I wouldn't be interested in writing the series if it was the same. And so to really see what Iron Gold is, then you'll have to read it in you know, in context of the entire seven book series. And I think that's when you'll be able to really reflect on the books. Now, it's critiques are fine. Mm-hmm. You know, everyone has a different reaction. I critique Star Wars all the time. I critique yeah. other people's <laughs> stuff all the right. time. But um, in terms of it not feeling organic, I think it was because I was taking it to a place where I was having Darrow's story just be a cautionary story, you know, the rise mm. and the fall. And then I wanted to get a bit more nuanced with it. And that's why I tossed that 400 pages. Jeez, I actually didn't know it was 400. I thought it was like more like 200 or something like I that. I did it a couple times. Wow. Jeez. Oh, yeah. 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 I probably wrote all told about a million and a half words for this. Wow. And then reduced it down to about 250. <laughs> thousand. Yeah. Yeah. My, <laughs> it's, it's hilarious <laughs> when you look yeah. at the documents I have. I'm going to have to release uh, somehow. Excerpts of sorts. Yeah. Excerpts yeah. of stuff. Because I have this whole, I have like a, 70 page several POV yeah. and just scattered chapters of different plot ways I was taking him. I mean, there's some stuff in there. I, I, I can't spoil, so yeah. I can't say anything, but there's <laughs> there's some really interesting situations in there. Well, because the people, you know, you've said that a couple times, I believe, on podcast appearances or whatnot for Lightbringer um, or upcoming Lightbringer stuff. But what about it didn't work? What about the several POV wasn't like, you know, jiving with you? It felt that I was responding to what fans wanted. Uh. Mm. Yeah. yeah. Does that tie into that original? Yeah. Like you were surprised that he was so well liked. Yeah. Yeah. And it, Wish mean, fulfillment, you know? And I think, uh, I think that that's when something's, uh, 
or an artist is in danger of perverting their craft in the wrong way and fucking up and making mm-hmm. it feel insincere and making it feel as though Reddit was dictating the story. Yeah. Right. I think you saw elements of that in Game of Thrones, to be honest. <sighs> I think you saw it with like Gendry, you know, rowing his boat and then coming back instead of just disappearing in the story. And a lot of things like that where they were really trying to milk fan favorites and they analyzed who the fan favorites were and then created unnatural storylines to feature those two characters together or to, you know upset fans to provoke and I don't want to provoke just to provoke I don't want to respond to fan opinion because then it doesn't feel as true to the characters Mm. yeah yeah it feels cheap you know and I think he can sense it well like one character that we love that most people hate we love Lysander oh we're going Mm. there and we're gonna do it we're talking about Lysander (laughs) Mm. Um, we there's so much value in whether you love it or hate him it means it's working yeah exactly but it's just like Speaking of that tension, what is your what is your feeling on that natural conclusion that almost all readers have reached on on him, like just being this devious, horrible, you know, devil incarnate kind of character? I mean, it seems like you're. Is that what most people think? People really bag on him, like a lot. Like it's, it's bitch Xander and all these different things. Like <laughs> it's just it's to me. I'll be honest, it's just over the top. I just I don't understand it. I think mm. people it, sensationalize hate. Yeah, it's true. True. But it's, it's, the, it's the Red Sox-Yankees phenomenon, right? Yeah, it's, it's just, just rivals. Different, different team. Yeah, yeah. I think it's because he's not as relatable. He's the heir of an empire. Yeah. How you'd, it, I'd have to do quite a good job to have everyone like him. <laughs> yeah. Right? Because right off the bat, his life is better than everyone else's who's mm-hmm. ever existed on this planet because he owns all the planets. Yeah. Right? So I think it's more interesting to explore Lysander and not really try to make people like him, not try to make people hate him, but just to explore his narrative and his own Mm -hmm. internal psyche. And I think what's interesting about Lysander to me and why I love it if people hate him, I also think that there's a strong contingent of people out there that really do like him Mm -hmm. or at least like to read him. And I think that's because he's complicated Mm -hmm. because despite all the bad things he does, he doesn't have to feel bad about any of it, really, based on how he was raised, based on what he should accept. Yet there is a noble heart within him. Now, th- his rationalization and his mm-hmm. constant internal wrestling with that, he's wrestling with his angels like Jacob, right? Is it Jacob? I think mm-hmm. it's Jacob, yeah. And so he's wrestling with the better and worse parts of his, his uh, himself. And that's a novel to me. That's what a novel is. It's a crime and punishment, right? Absolutely. Yeah, it's Lysander's a, a fascinating character with the hate. Like, I feel um, I, I'm trying to avoid spoilers here for Lightbringer, so <laughs> we can, we can step. Yeah, I know it's so this, hard. All this burnt. I, I shouldn't you. have read it. <laughs> no. So if we step back just a hair, right? Mm. I I think that some of this fan base that has that that's on team they hate Lysander, right? Mm-hmm. It, I can see them maybe having a little bit of a hard time. Because just setting the stage, right, I don't think that's a spoiler. Um, we see him very much step into the, the mantle of a reformer. Mm. And when I kind of survey the land, I see very much where we came into the story with the Telemannus family, where Mustang was. I mean, the, these characters didn't want a complete overthrow. That was never their intention. That was something that was essentially foisted upon them, right? They had this moral conviction and they switched. Yeah, And it's like... 
those are inherently like good in air quotes. I'm if you're watching the video <laughs> or not watching the video, right? Those are inherently good characters. And then mm-hmm. for some people, Lysander is an inherently evil character. But I, I see them sort of on the, uh, the same precipice, just in, in different time zones. Evil's a tricky word. I agree. I think. I mean, we often think of you know sinister as evil. Sure. I think evil is simply the rejection of others' human rights because you want something more or believe something more. And when you reject other people's human rights and put yourself or your ideal above those, then that is inherently evil. Mm-hmm. That's what's so fun to explore the difference between Darrow and Lysander because both do evil things. Mm-hmm. It's easier to say something is a, or a bad thing. Evil is such a tricky word, right? Yeah. Or a thing with heavy cost. Um, but Lysander to me, is very much, uh, while he's, he's not um, relatable in, the, in one sense because he's an heir of empire, like I said, he is very relatable because he has probably the hardest time shaking off his conditioning of anyone. Mm-hmm. And we're all conditioned. Yep. Society conditions us. We're all linked together by a web of common myths. In America, it's... Take your pick. <laughs> but the founding fathers, Paul Revere, all men are created equal, except when they weren't. Mm. And America in and of itself is a study in hypocrisy, just like Lysander. And that's why he's such an interesting character to me. Because Darrow is nothing if not true. He's an arrow. Mm-hmm. He's driven, yeah. right? Not very complicated, but super complicated beneath that. Mm-hmm. But he's just going that way. Lysander is always trying to figure out which way to go because he cares so much about morality because he cares so much about... What do people think of him and stuff like that? Yeah. yeah, yeah. And so I think he proves his moral goodness, even if it's misguided, even if the things he does is bad, are bad. And he, no matter which, I don't want to try not to do spoilers. Yeah. No matter which way <laughs> See, he ends hard. up... Yeah, no matter which way he ends up going, I think that that struggle shows that... He might have lost or won the battle for his soul, but the battle itself, I think, makes him a noble character in a way, even if he's a villain mm-hmm. or a hero, right? So I love seeing that his, his struggle is very different from Darrow's, yet they're both struggling with their concept of morality, what's right, and what do you sacrifice for what you see as the greater good? Yeah, so... So I, I love that people hate him. That's fine. Yeah. yeah. You know... I'm sure I, I thought you'd get enjoyment out of that, like, because I've heard you also say, like, you're an author that likes to explore concepts and I'm assuming that applies to characters. You like to give that exploration and, and kind of, you're not trying to tell people what to think, but mm-hmm. you're, it's just kind of naturally happening. I feel like you get a kick out of that. Somewhere. Well, what I find ironic is that the Jackal is far less hated. In fact, I imagine, I, I imagine he has way more fans yes, than does. Lysander does. Irony. <laughs> so I would, I, I, would, I, would, I would challenge everyone to think about that. Why is someone who is probably the purest evil yeah. and, and selfish, most selfish character in the series more well-liked? Why do they like him? Mm-hmm. I would say it's because he's not going through that struggle. Or, that struggle. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so he's not annoying because he's just fun and exciting. And so what you're really annoyed with is someone's indecision and then the eventual hypocrisy, which is more complicated. But also look at yourself when you hate on Lysander mm-hmm. and see who else you're a fan of. I think the POV does that a little bit too, right? Because when you look at a Lorne or when you look at a Romulus, right? If you want to talk about, like, I love the nuance that this is why I like the second series so much and and what you've done with it. Um, 
is the exploration of this gray area because so many people see Romulus as this internally like um, honorable, honorable mm-hmm. amazing character, and and like I love Romulus, don't get me wrong, but he's also a slaver. You love a slaver. I mean, that, that's the truth of it, mm-hmm. right? And they mm-hmm. they don't they seem to again that Red Sox Yankees thing. It's it's they're just ride or die, and they've made their decision, and then they won't apply the same sort of forgiveness uh, to Lysander. And uh, another question on you writing Lysander as a POV. I'm, I'm interested in two things. So one, we'll ask him one at a time. How about that? Um, one is the second series to me is, is a lot of questions. Again, going back to that theme of the questions you wanted to ask of your own IP. Um, so what was the inclusion of Lysander as a POV? What questions were you trying to ask? I wanted to see inside the gold oligarchy. I wanted to see the exact inverse of Darrow. Darrow, you had someone who was doomed to die by 30, everything taken from him, and would inherit nothing. And so I wanted to show the exact opposite, the guy who would inherit everything, but then had the same kind of thing happen, lost everyone, and see how they handled it differently. So it's simply a study in contrasts. Okay. Um, I mean, how could I not include it? (laughs) If you look at it that way, right? It's fascinating. Um, and, and not, not to, again, this is not to like minimize any sort of character. Um, but the, like we talk about Darrow being the Mm. driven arrow, right? A lot of the characters, we don't know how they're going to get there, right? The journey is, is all the fun anyway. Mm -hmm. And you might kill him off with a death hat or something anyway. Mm -hmm. And and so it won't matter, but it's not me. It's the rail gun. It's it's not your fault. It's the hat. (laughs) But the trajectory I think for the majority of the characters, like I, I don't question where Kavix is going to end up. Mm-hmm. You know, I question whether or not he's going to live through everything. Mm-hmm. But I don't. He's he's a he's an inherently good-hearted protagonist. Um, and I think people are drawn to that truth in characters mm-hmm. when they, they don't are. know which way they're going to end up, or unless they're doing unless they're being unpredictable in a delicious way, like the Minotaur. Yeah. Minotaur yeah. is well loved because he's just delicious, yeah. and you never know which guy he's going to go because he's so fucking entertaining when he does it, right? But what I think you're talking about is the inherent truth of a character. You feel like Cavax is true. Say, for instance, Cavax betrayed everyone. That would be Fonzie jumping the shark, right? <laughs> yeah. it was, in your mind, exactly. Fonzie jumping ten sharks. Yeah, yeah. that would probably yeah, have right. more anger directed towards me than if yeah. I killed half the cast, <laughs> because then I'd be going against the truth of a character. Yeah, and that's what's fun about Lysander. You don't know what his truth is. Well, that's the point. I, that's, that was the end of my. That's why he's frustrating. Question. Yeah, sorry. To, sorry. No, no, you're you fine. Yeah. Was, he knew it. He knew where you're going. Yeah, I, I know. That, well, that's great. But it's like, yeah, Lysander. We, he's the one that I have no freaking clue. Like mm-hmm. what his trajectory is. Mm-hmm. I mean, he is. Uh, you know, it, it. It's a trope, but a little bit of this coming of age story. And he's on the precipice of his life, right? Mm-hmm. And and you have like the angels, like you said, and and we're just as readers, not sure where he goes. Like, well, you, the, the, the tetralogy, right. <laughs> the four books. <laughs> I, I, one day we're just going to call our seven book series yeah, and, not, and not differentiate between yeah. them at all and just say there was a time jump, but I think yeah. we should start doing that now. All right, okay, let's, cool. do it. let's do it. No more second series talk. But right. I'm going to then talk about the second series. Yeah. Um, the second series is, if you look at it structurally, it is nothing more than two tropes. The rise a coming of age story, the rise mm-hmm. of a hero and Lysander and the fall of a hero mm-hmm. and seeing where they intersect. That's what the second series is in the aftermath of the first one's glory. 
and he's unpacking it, he's falling, can he resuscitate himself? Can his cause resuscitate itself? How do they do that? And can it stand the test of its own virtues? You know, them not having a death penalty. <laughs> Would have been way easier if they had a death penalty, wouldn't it? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. But it, that's what's so fun about the, this, this, this new series, the four books to me, is seeing, and you're not sure which way Darrow or Lysander will go, but those are the two arcs, really. Yeah, it's, it's such a gravity well to me because, I mean, you munch, mentioned uh, Crime and Punishment, one of my favorite books. Mm. And I think that to me is the draw. That's the excitement is, is the, the mental turmoil. Mm-hmm. And, and very similar to Lysander, right? Mm-hmm. You're, you're not sure how this character will cope with the murder. Mm-hmm. And in very much the same way, I, I just see him teetering. and I'm not sure which way he's going to drop off. And, and that's the excitement. That's the draw, I think, mm-hmm. for, for me personally as a reader. And often, also, that's kind of the excitement of Darrow because he's a bit more situational in moments. But when he was confronted with the arch governor at the end of Red Rising, mm-hmm. is he going to try to stab him? He wants to. <laughs> Instead, yeah. he pledges himself to it. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And that's the fun part. And that's where the great tension in the story comes from is those moments. A couple more questions for you, Pierce, then we'll take a, a quick break, and then we'll, uh, Janelle will join us oh, for fantastic. a couple, couple more questions. Bring more. in the legal mind. Yeah. That's right. Well, she'll, yeah, she's going to talk about copper representation. <laughs> she's going to bring some fun questions for you. Um, Why are all the coppers evil? <laughs> they're not. They're you. Because evil is inherently banal, and so are accountants. So we I love all the accountants watching. <laughs> <laughs> love them all. Love to accountants. It's right? about bureaucrats. That's mm, what it's about. Yeah. <laughs> Um, so we had you on two years ago mm. and it was like, a, like we, we talked about, that was a zoom call. Mm. It wasn't really, it wasn't face to face. It's hard to, it's even harder to get into these, like, kind of the dig deeper on. Some yeah. And I was in a fugue state during COVID. So. Yeah. Sorry yeah. about that. <laughs> um, you had something that, so I didn't catch it in the moment. So I went back and edited the, you know, the footage and the audio mm. and you said something that has just been, it's stuck with me for like over a year. Mm. And I wanted to ask you if it's still emblematic or you still feel this way. So that's kind of prefacing the question. But you have this quote, and it said, in the end, the series is about one thematic question. Do you submit to fear? That's what Dark Age is all about. That's what Iron Gold is all about. Do you submit to fear and inconvenience? Is it worth the sacrifice required? And at the end of The Lightbringer, you guys will find out how each character answered that question. <laughs> so there, that's, maybe that's probably the best answer you can probably provide right now. But... In the writing process, like outside of story, but in the writing process exclusively, do you, did you take that same mindset, or because of you know two years ago you you know threw out pages and stuff like mm-hmm. that? Did you find yourself shifting from that idea? The process of writing a book for me is the winnowing down of themes until I arrive at the truth of a book, and that's true of the overall series. But each book has to say, say something different, and I would say Lightbringer is the response to that for a lot of the characters. Mm, And when I figured that out, that helped me figure out the book. And so, for instance, that question, while true, is something that you forget. You do lose the forest or the trees. And when you are writing, at least for me, it's about rediscovering what you already knew or rediscovering what you already knew and then answering the question or asking, Mm. you know, adding a clause. And so when I discovered that Lightbringer was the answer of that question, with a very literal representation of fear in Atlas Al-Ra, the books started coming together for me. Mm. That character is a creep. I just say every time he's on the page, I just freak out. I'm like, this is so freaky, dude. He's probably my favorite in the new series. Really? Yeah. Yeah, Okay. Um, You just don't know anything about him. No, you don't. And it makes it all the more terrifying. 
Um, and he has no ego. Yeah, yeah none. <laughs> and he doesn't flaunt his plans. Yeah. Yeah, it's terrible. On Luna, he wasn't going off to Hyperion to deal, hanging like zero gravity clubs and uh, pro clubs and chasing tail or really doing any of that. Yeah. He was down in the stacks reading and reading and reading. Mm. And for me, Atlas is one of those characters who just functions in a different way. Mm. And it's part of that remove that makes him so chilly to people because every, like, every reaction he has, is it calculated? Is that a natural yes. reaction? And that's what's weird. There's that scene when you first see him in Lightbringer, no spoilers, mm -hmm. when you first <laughs> see him at the, uh, the amphitheater play. <laughs> it's, it's classic, by the yeah, way. People, they, people will find out about it when they get thank there. Thank you. Yeah. That was one of my favorite scenes to write. Yeah, it's classic. He's just fucking with them. Yeah. With everyone. Mm -hmm. And <laughs> what is he really thinking? I don't know. Even with the jackal, <laughs> you had real emotion sometimes. Mm -hmm. I called him and I was like, dude, you don't believe what just happened. <laughs> like, I really, <laughs> really didn't call him on that, like, that specific part. But what's, I don't want to like, harp on that too long. Um, no, but it's a fun scene, yeah. isn't it? Uh, yes, it is. It's very, it's very entertaining. Um, a couple questions for you, just to like, kind of wrap mm. up this, this part. Yeah. I mean, I don't know how to ask this. This is just kind of a weird question. It's kind of in my head more than it, so I'm going to try to verbalize it best yes, I can. Yes, I can, I can give you a hug after this. I would love that. Um, 20 seconds? Maybe after Lightbringer. Okay, or yeah. Oh, yeah, no. you, want, you want to save that hug. Okay. Um, I guess the question would be, what do you hope that people walk away from Lightbringer with? Like, what do you, what do you hope for the fans? Like, what is your kind of outcome for them, your hope for them? That they forgive him. <laughs> well, here's the problem. Here's the problem. I can't answer that with complete honesty because okay. then it gives away the book. Don't uh, do that. Yeah. Like they've been on a journey. Hmm. Mostly that. And the resolution of that journey for each character is different. But I wanted this book to... Dark Age was based on the Iliad. This one's based on the Odyssey. And so I want them to feel like they've spent a lot of time with these characters, that they've traveled as many kilometers and gone through as many highs and lows emotionally and then look back on the journey fondly no matter how it ends. I mean, like already, again, I'm only, I'm the more emotional one. I'm already, and he's, he's, he's really stoic. And so he makes fun Are of me. You? He, he makes fun I, um, of me for this. But I mean, I'm, I think I'm courting my Kindle. I'm like 53% away through it. Uh -huh. And I've already had multiple moments. Give me code, a code of what scene you're on. Okay. Code. Code. <laughs> That's hard. I'm not good Put at code. It in code. Um, Where are you in the system? Going to the rim. Okay. Going to the rim. With the on the smaller <laughs> or the bigger ship? <laughs> Big ship. Gotcha. Mm -hmm. You're gonna have a fun night tonight. Yeah. Reading that. Yeah. Section. Yeah, it's it's kind of just got into that phase. Yeah, where, yeah. So, um, yeah, yeah, it's hard. It's so hard. I'm, I'm not so hard. No, we did it. We did, we did it. it. We, I, I know exactly we, we where you leave are. Leave it there. I know exactly where you are. Um, but there's what I was saying. Just there's multiple moments where I'm just like, all right. there's a lot of first series. God, <laughs> we're using that word series again. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of that. You imbued so much of that. The dream of EO. The the first series mm -hmm. ideas have come back, and it's mm -hmm. really, in a lot of ways, like. It's brought tears to my eyes, mm -hmm. like you know, like literal tears, because of I feel that connection. You you were right when you said you're going to bring it back to the original Denia. Mm -hmm. You've absolutely delivered on Thank that. Thank you, absolutely. But this book just is such. It's not a return to form by no means, because like you know, Dark Age is a chef's kiss too. But it's just it just brings you. It transports you back to that. You know, you you feel like you've been on that journey. I'm not halfway through the book, and I already feel like I've been on that journey. Yeah. So I think that you've, if that's what you hope, you know, even though you can't answer that in full <laughs> honesty. 
I think you've already succeeded in that for someone who's read the book 53%. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. That's shocking and uh, puts a smile on my face because it's so difficult to sense that after rereading the book so many times, mm. after compiling it from, because I wrote it out of chronology. And so I was a madman doing this one. It's the first book I wrote out of chronology, doing scenes at the end and then going back mm. and oh my God. And so you just hope there's consistent tone. And of course, like the last couple of months, I, 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 man, I worked six weeks solid. It was probably not sleeping two or three nights out of the week. It was just, I was in a weird place. And that's, but I, that's actually when I found the book and started sensing the pacing, sensing the tone, sensing those emotions and stuff. So I was, while delirious, I was also tearing up in those moments yeah. because it is that circularity, which if you don't employ, makes these books feel like, well, what was all the original trilogy for? And I think in this book, you start really feeling what that originally trilogy and all the sacrifices before was for. And that's what I really wanted to bring home because Dark Ages, supposed to push you it's supposed to alienate it's supposed to be just an obsidian hitting you face <laughs> yeah. on a rocket you know to outer space it's supposed to be like that and alienating because of how bad it can get but it's essentially delivering on every promise anyone who's warned daryl about war has mm -hmm. it's supposed to deliver on that promise lauren warned him about and everyone else and octavia it's supposed to be her great fear and in lightbringer it's about the fragments of the people who survived Dark Age finding family again and finding hope mm -hmm. and finding the will to push through. Remember that line that Severo told, or Dara told Severo when they were standing over Ragnar's body, that we are the light. And yeah, and we we're keep, spreading. Yeah, mm -hmm. but we kept looking for light. But mm -hmm. this time the light's shrinking. Mm -hmm. And so what do they do then? And yeah. so that's, that's the fun thematic question to ask. And then just the sense in this book, what I did differently is I really focused on the time between things. In most books, say, for instance, when Darrow says in the original trilogy that he's going to go talk to Lorna Arcos, the next chapter, he's standing with Lorna on his castle. Mm -hmm. In Europa, he's like already there. And yeah. this one, I wanted to slow it down and have those interim periods of the space between and to show the actual travel and the journey. It's a Pierce Brown book, so there's war, mm -hmm. right? There's war. So, yeah. So, <laughs> but uh, you, you saw, yeah, you saw the, uh, how to say it, God, how do I even describe it? A code. Which <laughs> <laughs> is a whole coded podcast. <laughs> the once more unto the breach section. Yeah, yeah. But I'm always like, when are they going to just talk again in Lightbringer? Like, I'm way more eager to get back to these mm. quieter moments in Lightbringer mm -hmm. than I am to get into the, the good amount of war that I've already witnessed mm -hmm. in the, or read, rather, in the book. I'm just so eager to go like, this is cool. And I love this because this sure. is kind of what made me fall in love with the story with the yeah. Institute and all that stuff. That, you know, those war games or war. But... I just, the quieter moments in Lightbringer are really brought forward. That war only matters because of the characterization that happens before and after. Mm -hmm. And it only, and the stakes have already proven the stakes by the, you know, beloved dead uh, tally that we have. So those, the fun thing is that, that uh, those scenes, the violent scenes aren't the reason for this book. Mm -hmm. They were the reason for Dark Age. And if you see, look at Dark Age, you see a lot of characterization in battle. You see the bond that Alex and Darrow have when they take down the Jägendrockers. Yeah. When they take down the Titans. Yeah. And they sentence the guy to the mud, cut him in half, and toss C him off. Cicero? Cicero's yeah. dad. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah, not Cicero. Yeah. Scorpio. Scorpio. Yeah. Yeah. And so in this one, I want each book to feel different. I want each book to feel as though it has the same soul, but not that it's repeating. And I want each book to feel almost like 
it has its own unique tone. And so this one, I just wanted to shift it away from that tone of Dark Age, right? And each book does have its unique tone. But there's often, when I read series, I feel a decline in uh, quality, or I feel a decline in that it goes away from the original story, the feeling of the original story, or that it's just a filler book. And while penultimate books are often filler books, they're just trying to get things uh, set on the table, right? And when you know it's a penultimate book, you know there are certain stakes that can't mm -hmm. come to play, right? So I felt as though it was really time to get to know our characters again. So the way we're so talking, <laughs> the way we're talking about Lightbringer right now, talking about the journey, the returns, it, it almost feels like closure, and yet you have a whole other book. Mm -hmm. um, I, I asked Philip this question. He he saw something from you, but I just want to confirm and make sure for my understanding. Um, this. You didn't start writing it as a single novel, right? This isn't like one of those Orson Scott Card, um, what was it, Xenocide and, and Children of the Mind mm -hmm. that the uh, publisher had yeah. them split in half? Yeah. And Speaker for the Dead maybe too, but was it Xenocide? It might have been those two, yeah. yeah. It, it was or just like for Crows and Xenocide. Dance of Dragons. Yeah, yeah no, yeah. not like that. Yeah. Okay, so this wasn't a publisher thing. This is, you, you set out to intentionally write two separate books. Correct. Okay. I wish that 1.5 million words was being used and I didn't have to write from scratch <laughs> in book seven. But that's not how I write. I didn't want to – I want each book to feel like it's it's a standalone, even though it's not, even though it's part of a larger story. But at the end of this one, there's more a sense of completion. Dark Age has a bit of a cliffhanger at the end. Mm -hmm. And with Lightbringer, instead it feels like all the stakes are set, all the table is set. And there's a lot of resolutions. There's a lot of plots closed off. And – Dark Age and Iron Gold about opening up plot. And so then this one is about making it manageable so you know what you have going into the final book. Um, did that answer that? No. No, I think it does. It does, okay. <laughs> I like that you asked him. But that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you, yeah, you can hold my feet to the fire if yeah. I don't answer a question. <laughs> no, that's cool. I'm just bloviating over here. We have to speak in code, though. Yeah, we do. that's the problem, right? Yeah. That's the problem. I'll, I'll come back on once uh, Lightbringer's been out be the awesome. a little while. Yeah, that'd, that'd be, be awesome. Yeah. Um, let's take a break and let's bring Janelle on. Fantastic. All right. I want to take a moment and tell you about our new sponsor, Neuro. Neuro makes great tasting gum and mints that don't just freshen your breath, but they give you a boost of energy or a relaxing calm. My favorite is the Honey Lemon Calm and Clarity. These have been super good as after dinner mints because they satisfy my sweet tooth, but they also have vitamin D3, GABA and L-theanine, which help you de-stress and relax. All Neuro Mints and gum are vegan, sugar-free, aspartame-free, and gluten-free. And right now, when you order from their website, getneuro.com, you can get 15% off your next order with our promo code, HAILREAPERPOD. So go get some today. You will not regret it. That's getneuro.com, G-E-T-N-E-U-R-O, and use our promo code at checkout for 15% off, HAILREAPERPOD. We are back with Pierce as well as Janelle, our community ambassador. Janelle what up, has, Puffin? yeah, what's so, up, Puff? Strawberry uh, Sovereign. Let's go. <laughs> I don't even remember my other name. <laughs> <laughs> All the nicknames. Uh, Janelle has basically. You went into our Discord and you asked our group, uh, "What are some questions you have for Pierce?" And you got some doozies. Yeah, I got some juicy ones. Juicy. Yeah. Um, <laughs> All right. Ooh, see. Let's see. So I'll, be, I'll be the arbiter. And now it's time to play stump the author. I'm really excited. <laughs> Kill Mary Fox. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Wait, we're not, we don't play no, that. No, no, no. We are not playing Hard that pass game. Pass on that. Sorry. Yeah. 
I got so much flack for marrying Darrow. We can talk about that later. <laughs> yeah. It'd be a hard one. <laughs> okay, but I would do want to start out with mine because yeah. I'm the sovereign. So I <laughs> you totally guessed my question as the only copper of the group. And you having a close family member, a copper herself, what is your deal with coppers in <laughs> the Red Rising universe? <laughs> oh, I'm just straight up, straight out of the gate. <laughs> well, I think the coppers are often used as a lever or a cog in the machine. Mm-hmm. And that's mostly it. Uh, they're part of the bureaucracy. It's also, uh, I guess, a perhaps an internal bias against the bureaucracy that has allowed a lot of evil to perpetrate in the world. Mm. So it's the guy who's just following orders, the guy who's just, you know, helping the trains get delivered to Auschwitz. Jeez, wow. <laughs> so, uh, good, good luck not, on the bar, Janelle. It's not a commentary. Thank you, thank you, yeah, it's not a commentary against lawyers uh, in this in this world. It's, it's more so I see them as the sin, the sinews of empire. Yeah. Yeah. Not everything's about you, Janelle. Oh, wow. Are you sure about that? Yeah, no, absolutely. No, I'm not. That's not what, no, so it's that's like, what my mom told me. It's, uh, also, also you, you know, there's 14 different colors. Yeah. And sometimes you lose track of how many you've made evil of one color and how, not even mm. evil. I, I doubt there's really an evil copper. Yeah. They're just, they're, they try to play Isn't, the game like the others do. Mm. <laughs> like poor Publius. Yeah. Like Publius thought, you know. He thought, he was like, oh, you're, you're gold? Like, yeah. what? Yeah. <laughs> he thought he had a chance to play the game of three. Thrones, you know, and then all of a sudden, you either win or you die, man. <laughs> yeah. So for me, it's also a track uh, effect of like I'm not keeping track of how many coppers have not been nice characters or have not been helpful characters, mm-hmm. and because I also wonder, you know, how many violets have I made? Have I made any bad violets? You know, so sometimes I'll go through my head, like, all right, I need in this scene a bad violet. Shit, they need to be able to fly. So I guess it's a blue again. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, but um, I think that I read somewhere that you were also considering being a lawyer yourself. Is that... sure. So I mean, there might have been some subtle digs yeah. at, at first. There might have been some subtle digs. Yeah, and I, I, I would I truth. would say in terms of the least trusted professions in America, have you ever seen one of those charts? Oh yeah, oh, yeah, no. yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. Uh-huh. Makes good old attorneys. Yeah, yeah. So I can. I mean, you're I can not, pick on not too. wrong. Yeah. I'm not not wrong. I'm not not wrong. <laughs> no, I, I like I like the idea of what you said about bureaucrats because yeah. it, it, historically, right? It's it's very accurate. It's mm-hmm. like you're on the verge of power, and mm-hmm. oftentimes those those people, there's like this unspoken coercion almost through that being on the verge of power and so close to those power heads. Um, mm-hmm. You know, you, you talk about Hitler, obviously evil, evil man. But those who follow along, it's like, why? Yeah, and some of them, more so than Hitler, Hitler would have, I guess he'd be a violet since he was an artist at first mm. and quite a performer. Yep. And that's really, yeah. that's really was his skill set yeah. in terms of uh, what, check, what boxes were checked in his demagogue yeah. sheet. It would be, he'd be a violet. But uh, if you look like Vladimir Putin, he's a died the wool copper. I mean, he wasn't even a super spy like we wanted how you know like we want him to be because we want him to be a bond villain he was a bureaucrat he was a bureaucrat who was close to the levers of power anyway probably more I, questions i have a fun game <laughs> yeah. we should just go through and mention historical figures and just you just tell us what color they are uh, that. that actually <laughs> would work yeah that would work oh, no we'll, we'll do that we won't do that janelle's questions <laughs> but that's fine okay <laughs> <laughs> so you mentioned some music tied to certain characters mm. um i was wondering what song would describe Lightbringer. I know that you played Destroyer on your Instagram story of, mm. of Monsters and Men. Do you, yeah. Does that still hold as like uh, the... It's one of them. I would say probably uh, Humbling River by Pucifer. 
Ooh, I have not heard that one. It's great. <laughs> Google. It's great. It's great. I'd say that. Yeah, I think that Random House is going to put out a playlist that I concocted. And uh, Humbling River is it opens and closes it in different ways, yeah. So I think Humbling River Destroyer is more of an introspection of the uh, introspective look into Darrow, I think. That song resonates with him, but perhaps not with the whole story. Ooh, I love that song. Um, if there is a another song that you could attach to, well, I guess since you already answered the Darrow question, um, let's say Lysander for Lightbringer. What song would it be? Buried in the Murder by the Lonely Wild. For Lightbringer? Mm-hmm. Okay. <laughs> Philip, you got that one? <laughs> didn't, didn't you say that a lot of this was actually written in silence, though, this yeah. time around? Yeah. As where yeah. before, you've kind of had, like, thematic, like, writing music in the background, right? Yeah. Yeah, and it's good for a touchstone, but I find that it can affect the actual prose mm-hmm. in a negative way for me. My brain just gets so involved with it that I'm, like, trying to write a movie trailer every time. And <laughs> it makes it really dramatic. Then I reread it, and I think, goodness gracious, this is like Gormenghast on crack. I don't know if you have read Gormenghast. Never mind. Uh, it <laughs> is... I don't know, over, overdone, overbaked. And so it can just dictate too much of the tone. So I wrote in silence because I wanted to feel the cadence and I wanted to be the one dictating the pacing as opposed to being informed by a song. I find it more useful as a tonal touchstone. Oh, I like that. And I think that I'm going to go into that as a, one of our first um, audience questions. For, um, this one comes from Sushi Western. Um, Cataclysm is her howler name. And her question is, are there any other mental tricks that great gold houses develop to avoid being killed or worse? Mental tricks. Yeah, I think kind of like, um, what is it? The mind. Uh, mind's eye. Yeah. Oh, mind's eye. Certain things like that. Yeah, the mind's eye is, while unique in terms of its its name to House Loon, is basically meditation it's meditation and using what your brain like like when lysander gets blinded right he just mm-hmm. takes stock of where people were he remembers it because he has a photographic memory mm-hmm. and he guesses where they would have moved to and so the other ones because they didn't know they were going to get blinded the other people there didn't take stock of where everyone was and also he moved in an unpredictable pattern whereas not all of them did the one that did is the uh the last kill and the one that wounds lysander a bit. seneca seneca thank you um and the so the mind's eye is so, – I mean, if you look at David Blaine being able to survive nine and a half minutes mm. underwater, you know, that's – It's sim- the slowing of the heart rate. It's slowing the, the heart rate. These of, are things people can already yeah. do, but like I've heard Lysander say he has superpowers. And just because it's conveniently discovered does not mean it's a superpower. <laughs> and, it, and he's been trying to work on the mind's eye since Iron Gold. But uh, I'd say that every uh, – some of the older gold houses would have it. Uh, like the Telemonises, in my mind, had a, like a more of a berserker one. Mm. Uh, kind of like Logan Nine Fingers uh, from the uh, Blade Itself series, and so wow. each 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 house probably what what would be really cool is if each house had a thematic one, but yeah, th- I think that it's much of it is a lost art, mm. mostly because this breed of gold, the modern breed of gold, is uh, much diluted compared to their ancestors. Love that. That's great. Yeah, that's great. Okay, this one comes from my scepter. Are there any historical or living people who were the inspiration, at least in parts, for the characters? Uh, quite a few. Yeah, I think that – but it's, it's, it's usually not one character in, in particular. I think that Lysander is informed by uh, Octavius Augustus, Caesar's heir, as well as uh, Cornelius Sella. And 
when, especially when talking about Lysander, when we're talking about him being a reformer and how that rubs people the wrong way, right? Yeah. That, that's great. Because every single great man of Rome uh, during the about 130 to like 31 BC, um, starting with the Gracchii brothers, the Gracchii brothers were you know, two wealthy aristocrats who then became populares and were trying to represent the people in land reforms because they were seeing a concentration wealth of wealth with the patrician class, with the oligarchs. And they both got killed by the optimates, the, um, the oligarchs. And then after them, there was Gaius Marius, who was a bit more man of the people, became one of the richest men in Rome. And Gaius Marius also was a pop, was, he became more of the optimates. But Lucius Cornelius Sulla, a band with great breeding. So it was the guy who was a, a, from a hayseed, Marius, from the countryside, who became the leader of the optimates. Hmm. Whereas Lucius Cornelius Sulla, Sulla, one of the oldest patricians of Rome, ended up becoming the leader of the populares and restored the Republic in a way by murdering everyone. <laughs> he had the prescription accords. Like Atlantia is also kind of based on him. Hmm. Um, he says, and she actually has a quote from him, um, no, no friend, what is it? Uh, no enemy ever wronged me, nor friend helped me, who uh, I have not repaid in full. That's like was in, on his tomb. And then after after him, then there was Pompey, who uh, became leader of the Optimates and was this young. They called him the uh, adolescent butcher because he was like nineteen. And anyway, I'm going really deep into it, but <laughs> it's cool. Oh, there, there was Pompey, it. who was the adolescent butcher, who came up under Sulla. And then became the leader of the Optimates. And Julius Caesar, again, one of the oldest patrician families in Rome, um, some of the best breeding became leader of the Populares and exhorted the people and got the people on his side and then led another war, kind of like Gaius Marius and Sulla went at it. And then Caesar and Pompey went at it, both protege and master type scenarios, both Populares and Optimates type scenarios. Both the one with the better breeding was with the, the people and used the people as a demagogue to rise the power. And so, you know, Lysander is very much based on that. And that hypocrisy is so part, so much a part of history. So, yeah, there are characters based on <laughs> Long story short. Long story short. <laughs> I get so nerdy about this stuff. I, I, I love just, it. I just no, fall I, was like, yeah. I, I think so you excited. answered the question uh, tenfold, like, so you're great. Where did yeah. I yeah. take history? <laughs> yeah. You took us to Rome. <laughs> no, for real. <laughs> but, it, I mean, so much of your writing does that. It, it's a touchstone on actual historical events. Oh, yeah. And I think so often, like, Authors, especially in like the quote unquote like sci-fi realm, will write something and and it's like oh this hypothetically could come true, mm -hmm. right? But you ground things in history oftentimes, mm -hmm. and you're mm -hmm. like, well, it's happened seven times, so of course it would happen in my well, world that, too. I'm not interested in commenting <laughs> on our modern political situation. I right. don't think that's my job. I think my what I'm more curious and interested in to, to do is look at. Uh, not the, it sounds really pretentious, the human condition, but instead look at patterns that keep repeating. Mm -hmm. It's universal truth, right? Yeah. Yep. yeah. Look at, find, try to find a universal truth. I think that's more informing because I'm on a quest for knowledge too. I'm not standing on a soapbox saying believe what I believe. It's more so I'm interested and curious about these things. So in my writing, I'm trying to discover what I think about them. And that's what I hope my readers did too. Because, you know, we all roll our eyes when there's a political screed, even if it's one you agree in in a book. Yeah. It's like, God, okay, you're so smart. <laughs> Go back to your Twitter feed. Yeah. Keyboard warriors. Yeah, but then there's, also, <laughs> then there's also sections that have perhaps not a character based on a historical figure, but a, a moment in their life. Like Darrow very much um, represents the story of Coriolanus, a oh. Roman general who uh, defeated the Volsces, the his people. Um, 
and came back to Rome and tried to run for consul, but he was so unpopular because he was just an asshole. And they chased him out of Rome, so he went and fought with the Volses, you know. And then also Alcibiades kind of is represented to a degree by uh, the Minotaur. Of mm. a man who's just so talented and <laughs> so, I mean, slept with everyone's wife, uh, <laughs> everyone's wife, so including his talented. patron. <laughs> and then he got chased out of Athens into the arms of the Spartans. But then he did some bad stuff in Spartan and got chased to the Persians. And then he got chased out of Persia and went back to like Athens. And then eventually, like somewhere along the line, he got killed in a you know, very sad way. But um, from. STDs or like, <laughs> <laughs> that is pretty we don't know. We don't know. I, I, they I, hadn't I, discovered him yet, so yeah, maybe. I feel like it was a pretty grim, grim way to go. He's beautiful, smart, talented. Yeah, probably slipped over soap. Too talented. <laughs> slipped over soap. Something's Who knows? So banana lame. peel. Yeah, yeah. Just yeah. two banana peels on just both feet. Who else about these? There's yeah. a great book, Tides of War, by Stephen Pressfield. Oh if you ever want to look Gates into Alcibiades, Gates Fire is great, but I think I think it, I think. My my favorite is Tides of War. I'm going to write mm. that down because I love Gates of Fire. Gates of Fire is great. Yeah. Continuously yeah. read that. Um, okay. Well, this one, I knew this one would be fun and it's still being talked about in our Discord. Ooh la la. Yep. Okay, I'm, I'm so, I'm like, ooh, okay, let's go. So this one comes from Rabbi Renaissance. Okay. And what was the purpose of Ulysses' death? I'm not Whoa. convinced it will serve oh, <laughs> as a motivation <laughs> for Victor, Severo, or Lyria. Nor do I feel like it softens Victor. I'm well, he's looking at it in a very, um, um, what would you say, uh, commercial, not commercial way, but the utilitarian way, mm-hmm. um, as though there has to be a reason for it, as though it has to, because I think that uh, one of the things we don't like in literature is when you fridge women, right? Yep. And you fridge someone, put them in a dire strait just to motivate a character, right? I didn't nail a baby to a tree to motivate a character. I did it to express a character. Which and express a theme, which is harmony, uh, which is the depths that uh, rage can sink to and anger can sink to, where you are killing your own hero's children. That's the point of it. Mm-hmm. And the point of it is to show the total extreme and how a cause can go so wrong. Because we're upset about, you know, some people can be upset about that, and that's fine. You should be upset about that. But it happens in our own world all the time. Mm-hmm. And so it's not as though I'm creating this. It happens to thousands of people. It's happened to uh, Darrow's done it with his bombs. He's done it with his iron reins. It's just different because it's in your face. But then again, there's only one or two sentences describing it. You know, not even describing it. It just says it, it's been done, right? Mm-hmm. Maybe there's one sentence. But I think that showing it gets into the realm of kind of torture porn or too grim dark. Mm-hmm. But it's more so that the fact that this is the depth that the red hand will sink to. And it's a way of doing it where it's not fun. It's not delicious. It's not great. You just saw that this could you know, was born, had his whole <laughs> life in front of him. But this is a way of the war touching Victor the way it touched Lyria. It's also a way of showing the consequences aren't just limited to the Reds, that this racial genocide, which is being perpetrated by the Red Hand, can come from the bottom too. And we see that we have that actually actively happening in our own world. So it's my way of exploring that, much more so than doing it to motivate a character or to create anger or to soften anyone. It's not being used as a utilitarian, in a utilitarian way, but more so an expression and exploration of a theme. Right. And I'm not going to lie. I love that expression of Victor as she's swimming to the sea with her grief. Mm. Just that whole scene of like coming back. I just thought it was beautiful. And I now that you explained <laughs> the whole like the purpose of that scene, like it just fits together beautifully, especially like where she's headed and how she and Mustang come together. Mm-hmm. 
And hopefully, since I have not read Lightbringer, we'll see that Super Smash Sisters from our last podcast that we <laughs> that we asked you about. But I guess um, we're I will say I think I think Victor has the best line in the book, personally. Before they separate, before the battle. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. I think I love that line. There's hey, Victor drops. Uh, yeah, there's a couple good lines. I, I really like her character in this. Yeah. Um, when Pierce, couldn't you say? Could I t- tease something without spoiling? Code Let's talk. Try. It's code yeah. talk. Let's try. Yeah. <laughs> couldn't code one talk. say that if you do read Lightbringer, Ulysses' death is some sort of a? It does serve some sort of motivation for another character. Like, could you say that? Oh yeah, I guess. I guess. Because I feel like that was the truth. I guess so, but that I was not part of the plan originally. Sure, yeah. That's something I discovered. That's why in answering that question, I didn't think about that. And I think that it's more so the reaction to it. I don't know. I guess. I, I think it would be bad if it was um, spurring them to, you know, uh, gosh, I can't ruin it. Um, <laughs> it's the code. Yeah. Oh, I yeah, and know. see that that's uh, actually interesting because it brings up the question of like how it was intended and then mm-hmm. how it's later discovered to use. Because I then did wrote that section about three years after the Ulysses death. Yeah. And so it's m- a lot of times you. Well, one of the things I like most about the book is discovery, it, about writing is discovery, mm-hmm. and so that was not something that was planned. That reaction. Instead, it was when I talked to earlier about one of the difficult things about multiple characters is knowing what information to share and when mm-hmm. and discovering, oh, yeah, they don't know. Yeah. Mm. That was useful. But it also explores, how would I say, his general arc more so than it spurs him to a certain action. Yeah. So I, I guess for Rabbi, you know. The, yeah. There uh, is elements. There's, there's, elements. there's elements yeah, that are read, used. Can't wait for, for her to read the book and see what she thinks. Oh, yeah. yeah, definitely. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. Okay. This one comes from Data. In oh, the... um, oh, I'm sorry. And one of the big parts of that was also that they got the revenge so quickly afterwards that there was nothing to do with that grief. Mm-hmm. And that's one of the things okay. I wanted to explore a little bit too. Because right very soon afterwards you have it and then it's like okay now who do I punish mm-hmm. and there's no one really linked to Harmony you know Atlantia vaguely Atlas vaguely might have been you know sponsoring them or giving them money but it's not it's 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 hard to draw that responsibility to them and be like now I have to get more revenge it's that there's catharsis right off the way and it's like now what do I do with this this feeling sorry so Dark Age is my favorite <laughs> whoa you <laughs> no, were sick and twisted in Mike's punishment exactly that's why she's going into law because yeah. we talked <laughs> In, in the earlier <laughs> segments, we talked about how theirs was Iron Gold. Mm-hmm. and this Both seals. Yeah. It's theirs. 1A, 1B for me, Morningstar, Iron Gold, Tide, favorite. Which is what Lightbringer is like a combo of. Yeah. And yeah. that's what I wanted to <laughs> really ask is. you. If like when people tell you what their favorite books are of your mm. series, what does that tell you about the person? Actually quite a lot. And I also yeah, you're right. So <laughs> yeah. mm-hmm. Perhaps not about a person, but perhaps what they enjoy reading. Um, Pain. Pain. Lost yeah. <laughs> yeah, you like Edge. You like Edge. Oh, yeah. Yeah, Edgelord over here. Lordess. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I think it shows more so what uh, people appreciate in story, but it also would be interesting to see if it stands up under uh, a reread, you know, reading them all together, and if the same book would shine the same way. Because there's one thing about reading them individually when they come out, and then it's a whole other thing to see them, well, chrono- chronologically, and to feel each emotion of each one. But I'd say it tells you a lot. Like, I'd say it's hard not – often I get Golden Sun as being the favorite, and mm-hmm. I think that makes sense because of the pacing, the introduction to a new scope, the political intrigue. Um, 
but it's not a slow book. Mm -hmm. Morning Star is a slower book. And so I think that it, it does show you at least uh, what I'd probably be able to recommend other movies based on which of my books people like. Really? So what would you recommend for Dark Age? Well, I, well I'd, recommend, <laughs> I'd recommend you read more Cormac McCarthy. Oh, oh wow. I already have. Yeah, like yes. Blood Meridian, I'd be like, go for it, you know? Hard pass for me on Yeah, Cormac. for you guys, I'd be like First Man in Rome series mm -hmm. uh, by Colleen McCullough, I believe. Okay, yeah. Morning Star? Morning Star is a Return of the Jedi type feel to me. Okay. And well, so <laughs> it's drawing those kind of tonal yeah. parallels. So after pain of studying, more pain. Yeah. <laughs> and, and people who like Red Rising the most probably like The Hobbit the best or, or Fellowship of the Ring the best. Oh, I see that. I can yeah. totally see that. Hobbit, all time. Okay. So we're going to go back to Data's question. In the beginning, Lyria seems a lot like Darrow before he was carved, complacent with her place in society. But she showed a lot of amazing growth in Dark Age. I think she isn't appreciated enough for what she manages to accomplish without the advantages other characters have. What were your thoughts when creating this character who is basically a normal person among a cast full of people with superpowers? The concept, well, thank you. And the concept was to explore how a victim can gain agency. And it's not through, <laughs> it's not through overpowering anyone. It's often by being small enough to fit between the fists that are pounding. And so Lyria, if you look at it, has finds herself in more shitty situations than almost anyone else. It's mostly <laughs> it's mostly because no one even cares she's there. Yeah. And except Mustang. She's there in yeah, she's there in a way to be a witness. And then you'll see what I do with her in Lightbringer. <laughs> oh, I'm also no, no, no. So I'm feeling it too, man. Code. <laughs> it's 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 interesting going back to Lyria before Lightbringer, so we don't spoil anything um, and don't have to talk in too crypt of, of code. You know, we haven't released it yet. It'll actually probably drop around the same time this does. Mm. Um, but we did uh, you know, our Iron Gold uh, content, mm. and Lyria was for me the most fascinating topic in Iron Gold. So Easily. where we talk about Dark Age Lyria, like you know, my interest is particularly lies in, in Iron Gold Lyria because we mm -hmm. do, we find her in those terrible situations for the first part of her life. We find herself, um, you know, probably at the greatest disadvantage. And yet, like you said, I mean, agency is a huge topic we talk about because her power, um, you know, I called it her EQ, her emotional intelligence mm -hmm. and how she assesses the other characters and demands, I mean, her circumstance mm -hmm. fit what's best for her. She's She proverbially grabs the bull by the horns throughout the entire book. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of readers actually look at her as like a victim of circumstance. Yeah, not at all. I think that's interesting. I think that circumstance makes her a victim, but she ends up being the litmus test for the moral quality of every other character. Mm. And in many ways, she's the witness, but the judge as well. And Dark Age is about offering her power. Lightbringer is seeing what she does with that power. It's, the, <laughs> oh, it's designed to be. It's designed. It's, cool? design, it's designed to be that yeah. test. She's seen all the powerful mm -hmm. characters. She's seen what they do with it. She's seen the cost. She sees how difficult mm -hmm. it is. What will she do now that she has? I know the parasite. <laughs> yeah. And so it was all building up to that choice she makes. I got to yep. know. And that, that that choice she makes is. Her whole thematic point. Yeah, which is beautiful, but runs us right back into the wall. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Janelle, what's next? 
I'm shaking my poor head. Poor I'm shaking poor my head Janelle. at all three of you. You got sidebarred <laughs> in this whole thing. Seven minutes? Okay, cool. Um, hmm. Let's see here. Oh, I like this one. So this is from our, um, My Fury, Sashura. Did you always have plans for the Telemannis family in the larger story, or did that come after Pax came out of the death hat in Red Rising? It came after <laughs> Pax came out of the death hat. I, was, I owed my, I owed everyone. I didn't know people would read my book, so I, I owed everyone an apology. <laughs> so I, I, I think his dad Cavax existed in my early notes, but then the populating it with more uh, Telemannises was definitely my apologia. Yeah, <laughs> and also. And also, you did, I'd done so much character building with Pax that I honestly did not even think about the Telemannis family until the scene in, where Nero and them are in the war room and then the Telemannis had come to talk to Darrow. And I thought I've already done such characterization with Pax. It's a great way, uh, instead of recreating new characters, create characters who um, were from his family. And so there's already a sense of, I love these guys. And when Daxo and Cabex come up and say, we got your back. Yeah, it's fun. It, it, the reader's just ecstatic. Yeah. <laughs> now about this death hat, is it just like a specific hat? Is it your most hated basketball team? Or is it any hat? No hats are safe? It's a like... specific hat. And oh, okay. the hat reads Deus Ex Machina. <laughs> ah, <laughs> it is, that's it is battered and sweaty and gross. <laughs> and I had it for like 10 years. And I don't know where it is currently. Hmm. Oh, so no death? I haven't used it. I use, I no one dies in Lightbringer. <laughs> yep. No one dies. Nobody. I have not used the death hat since book five. Okay. Oh. Yeah. So the. Every, so it was planned? <laughs> everything in this one is planned. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. Good wonderful. to know. Good gotcha. to know. Or discovered along the way. Yeah. Okay. We're going to end off with this last question from Whitflash. Oh, and it's a fitting question. Across the series, a lot of characters have died, <laughs> most when it feels like they should, but we know some were earlier than originally planned, like Pax. What? We didn't just say that. Are the other characters that ended up dying earlier than you originally planned, maybe Quinn, Alex, or Serafina, but Alex mostly? That was a Janelle ad. <laughs> uh, Tongueless died earlier than I planned. I was going to explore his true identity in the book. Um, then Alex, Alex died, I think, unfortunately, right where I planned. Mm. Mm. And that one, that's actually one of the deaths that hurts me the most over the entire series. I'm not crying, series. you're crying. Yeah, Jeremy. Alex, I don't cry. <laughs> Alex was the hardest one for me, I think, of mm -hmm. the entire book. Mm. And maybe, yeah. like, one of the top three in the series. Because it's really hard when you see so much potential gone. That's mm -hmm. exactly why he was like my favorite and why Philip and I always get emotional. We go Alex and then we always do Alex with the hundred crying emojis yeah. after every anytime. Yeah. I don't even know like why he's getting brought it, up it, even in praise. To be honest, <laughs> actually, when I say planned, it wasn't planned. It was like it happened. Mm -hmm. I was writing and it happened. And oh, Lysander, there was no time? Lysander was in that situation and I'm in because I brought him back, right? Yeah. And I thought their plans is awesome. He's so fun. Um, he's really redeemed himself from his early kind of like, I don't know, pretentiousness mm -hmm. and proved himself to be Darrow's heir in many ways. And then I, he was in that situation with Lysander and I thought to myself, what would happen? Where is Lysander currently? <laughs> <laughs> and this, that came up and uh, I, I, I was very bothered by it and I thought that that meant that it was right. Mm -hmm. Did you mean to kill him off? I mean, I didn't write an outline saying he gets killed off. No, 
Okay, so the quickness of the death and Lysander doing the act with, you know, no time and stuff like that, was that planned or was that just to highlight anything of Lysander? It was to highlight his journey through honor. I mean, his journey in Dark Age is about understanding honor. Interesting. And what his entire thesis and discovery can be summed up by no time. You know what? I'm here for that. Because <laughs> I also have no yeah. time for it. I was just thinking, I was just thinking <laughs> Lysander knows how important this guy is. He's a piece on the board. Yep. One of the enemy's best pieces, a rook, you know. Mm-hmm. Boop. Kick him off the board. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. It's, it's war. Especially after he sprouts so much like, oh, I'm honor, like, honor is here and stuff, and then no time for you. <laughs> you just Sometimes you arrive at situations where you just see the perfect crucible for oh, a character. Yeah. The perfect moment, defining moment. And for him, it was I like showing a defining emotional moment in action as opposed to having an epiphany sitting alone. Right. And it seemed like a perfect way to show a schism between the old and new. With that vein, um, is there anyone that you could bring back if you could? Well, I, I, I mean, you could. I, I, think right? I, I, I think I get one clone per series. <laughs> yeah, boom. But nice. we're at like 268, aren't we? <laughs> what was the number that I don't remember from our Red Rising trivia? What? Oh, for Sophocles? What number Sophocles oh, Sophocles. Oh, yeah. Oh, Sophocles months. doesn't count. I don't, yeah. think I don't think it's that high. I, I yeah. think it's like 17 or 13 yeah. or something. Yeah. Oh, dang. See? Look at me. But, I, but I, might be, I, I may be wrong, but I think... <laughs> oh, you guys probably did it based on how long the society's been around, divided by the uh, yeah, that's exactly years of why fox I did it. Can, uh, Yeah. But uh, these are... This fox is also like, you know, 50 pounds or something. Yeah, so yeah, it's yeah. like... We're assuming he lives long. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think okay. the Sophocles is the best place to wrap up a podcast, Pierce. Um, so, <laughs> Perfect. What, yeah, let's go a ahead. Note. Uh, thank you for coming on. Thanks My for pleasure. meeting thank us here in so LA. Much. This is really fun. And we're just happy to just hopefully, again, we're like a few months down the road. Or yeah, love to. We'll do come back to actually, a sorry, this is over. It's fun yeah, to, this is fun. It's fun to bullshit and talk about me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's our favorite topic, too. It's you. <laughs> okay. I'm sorry, my books. Wait, 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 wait. <laughs> no, just you. Just yeah, you. Sure, sure. Yeah. What kind of deodorant do you use, by the way? <laughs> <laughs> Not enough. <laughs> yeah. Okay, until next time, Hail Reaper. Hail Reaper. Hail Reaper. Hail Reaper. The Hail Reaper team is Jeremy, Mathar, Janelle, and myself, Philip. All artwork was done by friend of the podcast, Jeff Halsey. Our theme music, The Gordian Knot, was composed by Jacob Albaum, with production and sound design by Tim Mount. A huge thank you to Pierce Brown for creating the Red Rising saga and fostering our passion for books. And thanks to all you listening, especially our patrons. If you want to learn how to become a Hail Reaper Howler and get additional content, check out our Patreon page, patreon.com slash Reaper. Follow us on Instagram, YouTube, and Twitter at Pod, and leave a five-star review on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. It helps others like you discover the show and is much appreciated. Until next time, Hail Reaper. <laughs>